stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer Sarah Gerard. Sarah's fiction, criticism, and personal essays have appeared in the New York Times, New York Magazine, the Los Angeles Review of Books, the Paris Review Daily, and Bomb Magazine. She's a graduate of the MFA program at the New School and the author of the chapbook, Things I Told My Mother. Sarah Gerard is here on Between the Covers today to talk about her debut novel, Binary Star, which Time Out New York, Flavor Wire, The Millions, Gawker, and Bustle all consider one of the most anticipated books of 2015. Receiving a coveted starred review from Publishers Weekly, Binary Star was described by NPR as a hard, harrowing look into inner space. And Vanity Fair says Gerard has written characters in lyrical and deeply affecting prose who are burned out and burning up what substance they have just to be known to each other. Welcome to Between the Covers, Sarah Gerard. Thanks, David. I've read multiple origin stories about how Binary Star came into being. One is that it was your MFA thesis. Another that an agent saw an article that you'd written about your struggles with anorexia and asked if you had a memoir, and you started it soon after that. Are, are these mutually incompatible versions, or is this somehow, are these both somehow truthful? Um, they're both true. I began writing a book with the title Binary Star as my MFA thesis for the new school, but in that iteration, it followed the story of two girls in the summer after they graduate high school who are sort of grappling for a future of some kind, and... I wasn't really connecting very well with the characters, and um, I was struggling to, I think I was f trying to force some kind of formal experimentation where it wasn't naturally arising from the story. So um, it, was, it was pretty disorganized, um, although I think some of the ideas might have been good ones, maybe not for that book, you know. So uh, I turned it into my thesis, and they, you know, accepted it because it wasn't bad, bad. It was just sort of mediocre, you know. Uh, and then I scrapped the whole thing and had basically given up on it. And then uh, I published that essay in the New York Times, and uh, a, f a writer friend of mine put me in touch with her agent who asked if I was working on a memoir. And that sort of granted me the permission I was looking for to write a long work about my struggles with food. Um, and I was pleased to discover that it turned into a work of fiction. Hmm. Well, well, introduce us to this protagonist in Binary Star. What is it that drives her and, and what, what is her story in, in the novel? What drives her is, uh, is a sort of unsolvable 
problem, right? So um, she wants something that she doesn't want. Um, she's in, a, she's in a, a, a relationship that she needs, but only in so much as they um, are enabling each other's sicknesses. Um, that's the only thing that keeps them together. And um, and what I mean is that they're sort of they're saving each other from the worst consequences of their sickness. So um, w- you know, at s- while at the same time, or in that in that way, perpetuating each other's sicknesses. So they're not getting better, and they're not you know, and they're only getting gradually worse over the course over the course of the story. But they can't they can't separate from each other. Yeah, and I think it's that sort of that obsessive compulsive. Um, it's that that obsession and that compulsion that propels the story forward. Well, sp- that speaks to the title, Binary Star. Can you tell our listeners w- what a binary star is and then in relationship to that, w- how that reflects on, on the couple and, and the ways in which they're helping each other and sort of also spiraling? Uh, a binary star, this is a direct quote from the book, a binary star is a system containing two stars that orbit their common center of mass. And in... Many binary star systems, they'll come to inhabit what's called a common envelope where they actually share an atmosphere. And then when they, when they grow close enough to each other, one star's matter will overflow the gravitational separation between them and begin to accrete onto, the, onto its companion star, which then, um, uh, which then overflows its gravitational boundary so that it supernovas. That's sort of what happens in the book, too. Is it's deliberately unclear whose sickness overflows, or it could be both of their sicknesses overflow the gravitational separation between them. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the system won't hold, and the center will not hold anymore. Well, I was going to ask you what drew you to using the, the language of astronomy, but it's, it, it's, there's sort of an answer embedded in, in what you just described around binary stars that it seems to me like astronomy has a lot of evocative language that that immediately feels like it sort of paradoxically translates to the human experience. I remember when I was even Googling binary star, I found a headline from an astronomy journal that said quadruple star babies found in cosmic womb. I know. Which I thought <laughs> was like, wow, that that's that doesn't that sounds like poetry more than it sounds like astronomy. You know, I was talking to another writer um, at a writer's conference just a couple of days ago, and I said, "What do you? Because I'm in the I'm in the beginning stages of a new novel now, and it's uh, rec- I'm I have to do a whole lot of front end research." And I said, "How do you maintain momentum when you, when there's a lot of you know when you have to do a lot of really necessary research? Um, you know, like what? Uh, how do you maintain that excitement? You know, um, for the you know for the story?" And she said, "Well, you have to be willing to." Except that when you're doing a lot of research, um, you're going to be your 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 plot is going to change. You know, you're going to have to you're going to have to be taking in all that new information and then and then willing to adjust your ideas of what the story might be. You know, because you can't help but be inspired as a writer. You know, by the things that you take in, and I think that's what was happening a lot with this story is that I I couldn't believe that I was so lucky you know to happen upon all this fascinating language and all and, and all these all these really relatable concepts. I didn't have to do a whole lot of plotting in advance because it was—it seemed to be right there at my fingertips the whole time. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Sarah Gerard about her debut novel, Binary Star. One of the things that I really particularly enjoyed about this book probably partially comes from its many origins. Like It feels like it's very adventurous in terms of form and style and tone. There's parts of it that read like lyric essay. There's parts of it that read like poetry. You use 
white space in, in unusual ways at times. And there's parts of it that read fully um, scenically like a traditional novel. Does that speak to the, the many ways in which you came to writing this fiction? Uh, yes and no. I mean, well, yes. And also, I think it speaks to the many ways that I like to read. Um, mm. I really love Maggie Nelson, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Kate Zambrino, you know. Um, about a year before I wrote Binary Star, I read uh, a book by T. Fleischman, which was a really gorgeous lyric essay. And um, I, I just, I, I love that, that style a lot. It really spoke to me um, as an essayist and as a, a a fiction writer and as somebody who would love to be able to write poetry and um, I feel like I always fail <laughs> when I try to write poetry because I can't bring it to an end. I'm of the mind that if you if you you know that if you have a piece of writing that's perfect already you don't need to shape it into something that's you know that fits the sort of like normative form and while I was doing research for binary so I was researching while I was writing the novel and I would come across these passages that were so poetic just exactly as they were and all I need you know all I would need to do is sort of perfect the idea you know Mm -hmm. like how many words can I you know how how brief and very very simple can I make this concept and you know if if it if it didn't if I couldn't fit it into you know four or five lines I wouldn't use it um so I I just left it you know I left it right there is it what it's you know perfect exactly as it is so there's that but then also um I I needed to, at some points, just move the story forward, you know, and these sort of frantic uh, inner monologues, you know, where the narrator's alone in her apartment, move the story emotionally forward, but they, it, it didn't move the plot forward necessarily. So, yeah, there was, that I needed to alternate a bit. Well, let's give the listeners a, a flavor of, of some of the, the okay. lyric prose in, in Binary Star. Sure. So... The story jumps around in time and space quite a lot, and this passage begins in the narrator's apartment where she's sort of with herself and her disease. And it sounds like this. I feel that the sun is rising. I've made more coffee. It burns in the gut in the kitchen. I move from the couch. I am little but a shadow. I feel that everything is a matter of because, because John and I talk on the phone, but it is mostly trying to understand. Now we're eating ourselves, and the star chart moves, and everything seems to be curving around what I want, but I can't find my way to it. The main sequence chart. Are we on the main sequence? We're dim. We're the center of the room. I'm fixed. I'm not fixed. I careen. I've been still for too long. What was I thinking? I was thinking about the scroll, but scrolls and in circles, clothing tags, toe tags, taglines, all seems to move except for me, and yet I feel that I'm in motion. I vibrate against you. I'm spinning. I'm spinning. John, I'm spinning, I'm spinning, I'm spinning, I'm spinning, I collapse. There are binary companions we never see, like black holes. When a body crosses the event horizon surrounding a black hole, it shifts to red. The body's red shift is its infinite gravitational lensing. I walk down the street without feeling. I always move without feeling. It is something I will. So oblivion is a verb, redshift. I think the pharmacist feels me. He anticipates my needs. Can I help you? No, you can't. I'm here again. You're in my periphery. So I see you. You see me. You look concerned. Are you sure I can't help you? Actually, no. The modern value of the limit of white dwarfs was first published in a paper, The Maximum Mass of Ideal White Dwarfs. Can you explain that? I stand in the diet aisle. Hydroxycut, lipazine, alley, EAC, metabolife, sensa, renew, natrol, Xantrex 3, slim, quick, quick trim, mega T, slim effects, phytogenic, zexadrine, dexadrim, 
Thermonax, Nitro Varin, Stacker, Labreda, Irwin Naturals, Triple T, Fat Burner, Soft Gels, A Stand at the Counter, Christina Ritchie, Nicole Ritchie, Portia de Rossi, Mary Kate and Ashley, that'll be 20, Misha Barton, Victoria Beckham, Bethany Frankel, Allegra Versace, is that all? Kelly Clarkson, Lily Allen, Kira Knightley, Ginger Spice, Credit or Debit, Lindsay Lohan, Lady Gaga, Fiona Apple, Isabel Caro, who's dead, Felicity Huffman, Calista Flockhart, Tara Reid, Karen Carpenter, who's dead, we want a candy bar for a dollar? <sighs> F*** you. The Barbie Twins, Laura Flynn Boyle, Paula Abdul, Joan Rivers, Sharon Osbourne. The latter is the ribs, the lines in the chest, the gap between the thighs. I want the rings around the eyes. Nobody ever talks about the giant black hole at the center of our galaxy or the fact that most, if not all, galaxies orbit supermassive black holes. It is not good for casual conversation to talk about circling oblivion, death. By death, I don't mean individual inevitable conclusion, but the death of any trace of any of this deep death if you consider that death is a matter of time. The nature of a supermassive black hole is such that the density of its singularity is less than that of a smaller black hole. In some cases, it is no denser than water. This means that a body traveling toward the black hole center will not experience significant tidal force until very deep into the black hole. An observer would notice very little change. Once a body crosses the event horizon, it redshifts, but it never disappears. We've been listening to Sarah Gerard read from her novel Binary Star. I think a lot of writers are allergic to using brand names and celebrity names in their in their novels. But not only do you seem comfortable using them, it's they seem you seem to foreground them for a specific purpose. Can you talk about the brand names in in the novel and what their what their functions is? Yeah, so the function is sort of twofold. Um on the on the one hand, the narrator I think is really grasping for an identity. Um, and grasping for some sort of human connection and doesn't doesn't have that in any real way in her in her everyday life. She has this boyfriend, but he's he lives very far away from her. She's alienated all of her friends. Um, the only other human being she converses with on a possibly daily basis is her mentor, who she can't really ask for help because he's you know, the, the arbiter of her, of her future as a teacher, which I think she's still wondering whether or not she wants that. So, you know, so she, she feels, you know, and I think celebrity gossip magazines have this really, um, have this, this really magnetic effect, you know, where like, you feel like, you know, the people that you're reading about, you feel like, you know, very intimate details about their lives. And that's something that magazines do on purpose to keep you reading because, you know, what, what are they but stories? So, um, so she's sort of, you know, she, she, uh, she relates to them uh, on what she belie- what she wants to be a human level, but she's also uh, she also sort of fills herself with a lot of different names in the hope that maybe something will stick. You know, hmm. um, there's this quote that you've said before: a person who is anorexic doesn't not consume; they don't consume certain things and they overconsume other things. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're speaking to around? Yeah, this this litany well, of names and celebrity names and stories of celebrities that yeah, and you know, and an eating disorder is also an addiction. Um, I think the the lie of anorexia is that you know, um, I rather I should say I think it's I think it's sometimes hard for people to conceive of anorexia as an addiction because you're not. Uh, you don't appear to be chemically addicted to to anything except maybe diet pills, you know. But you're but the real addiction is, is is not just food; it's like culture. At one point, when when I was really deep in my anorexia, my my boyfriend was over at my apartment, and I was standing in my kitchen, just staring at this huge stack of celebrity gossip magazines, and it was like 
February. It was really snowy outside. And, you know, he would always, you know, I mean, he, to his credit, you know, would frequently point out to me how, you know, how stupid this was, you know, like, why are you, you're a smart person. Why are you reading these so often? It's just junk food, which I think is a really good uh, analogy. But I, you know, I had had enough and I said, you like, please, like, help I'd asked people for help many times but in this one case I said please just help me like get them out of my apartment and we opened my kitchen window and just tossed them out into the snow it was like we were on the second floor mm. it felt like you know it, it felt like I had kicked the habit of course like I went out the very next day and bought more you know but it really felt like you know I had I had gotten rid of this very toxic part of my life some of the reviews of binary star call it an activist novel and I'm not always sure in the reviews what they're meaning, but when I try to articulate it, I think what they're trying to say is that the author is trying to elucidate a connection between gender, body image, and larger social and economic forces, whether it's corporate capitalism or or otherwise. And I, I wanted to know if you considered it an activist novel, and if so, in what fashion? It's so funny because I, I see what they're talking about, but that wasn't really what I set out to do. The other day, um, Jacob Wren, who's a brilliant writer and performance artist in Montreal, uh, asked me in an interview, he was helping me launch the book, um, A Drawing Quarterly, and he said, would you ever write a novel that was more, uh, that, that was firmer in its political stance? Because there's some ambiguity in these characters' um, activist ambitions, I guess I should say. So um, I think the answer is no. I think I, I can't really set out to write, I mean, if I were to write something like that, it would sound like a manifesto, you know, and that's, I'm much more of a gray area kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, when I begin writing a novel, I don't, I know that I, I have a curiosity, you know, there's a question I'm seeking to answer, but I don't, I have no idea what the answer is going to be yet. And I think in order for a work of art to be interesting and uh, to be interesting, you would need to have a, a kind of vulnerability and a paradox in the work that wouldn't be there if if I knew what I was going to say in advance. That um, totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, but in, in, the, in the novel itself, the couple at one point arrives in Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. and they, they do actually come a, across a manifesto of sorts, a vegan anarchist manifesto. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us, that sort of shifts their direction a little in, in the book. Tell us what finding that manifesto means to this couple at this point in their lives together as a couple? Well, it gives them something to believe in, which, which I think they didn't have before. And I don't know if they come to fully believe what they what they read in the book, but it gives them something to do, you know? Um, and it gives them a, a vocabulary for, um, for expressing, perhaps imperfectly, some of the things they've been feeling, you know? Mm. Um, I think in the narrator's case, she relates to the condition of animals who have been abused, you know? Um, and I think, you know, I, I actually, uh, in my chat book, I wrote about uh, a book called The Sexual Politics of Meat by Carol J. Adams, where she does, she draws a parallel between um, feminist and vegetarian concerns, in, you know, and, and the ways that, that women's bodies and, and, and animal bodies are uh, dissected in our culture and then, you know, and then consumed by the people who dissect them. Mm. Um, so I think she, you know, and, uh, in, I think the narrator, uh, and, you know, even at one point she says, uh, to her boyfriend, something like, um, you know, like, like people, people lash out because they, you know, because the, the hand that, that, that feeds them is also the hand that hurts them, you know, um, 
I th- I see a lot of that in our in our in the way that we eat in this in this country too. You know, in the way that our our that in the way that our our food is processed and then packaged to be sold to certain populations. Um, the connections between processed food and and socioeconomic difference. Um, I mean, it's all it's all there. And it's not not this is not to say that I have any kind of answer or that I'm even an expert. It's just, uh, uh, you know, a, a series of connections that I, fi- that I find really interesting and important. So um, I'm not sure how well it comes across in the novel, but it, would, but it was something that I think I was really curious about when I was writing, um, especially uh, animal rights issues. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to Sarah Gerard about her debut novel, Binary Star. Uh, tell us how some of the... the uh, the concerns of Binary Star relate to the epigram from the revolution of everyday life. I, I really enjoy the revolution of everyday life because it says many of the same things as the Society of the Spectacle by Guy Debord, but in a much more poetic way. And I was reading it while I was reading um, Binary Star and, uh, and was actually reading it during a, a time in my life um, along with my, my boyfriend when I was really deep into my anorexia and also interested in a lot of vegan anarchist concerns. Um, I'm I'm not a I'm not a philosopher and I'm, and I don't even purport to remember <laughs> a lot of what I read in that book. But the the, the general uh, message that I came away with is that um, <laughs> is that making art and making love are the same, and that um, and then this is the way that we can f- free ourselves. And, and I'm sorry I can't be more articulate. No, about that's it, very articulate. <laughs> uh, one of the other themes that's interesting in Binary Star too, I think, is that the protagonist wants to both disappear and to become very luminous and visible. Like she has a craving to be loved and in at one point even to uh, yearning to be a celebrity and also wants to, to disappear. And there's some parallels with that in the astronomy. I can't, I don't know if I could articulate them, but it made me want to talk to you about your chapbook and, and in relationship to binary star and this issue of visibility and invisibility. Hmm. Can, can you talk a little bit about your chapbook and what that enterprise was and maybe some of the shared concerns, if you think there are shared concerns between the two? Yeah. Um, I'm actually, I actually just rewrote the chapbook recently to include in an, in an essay collection. So, um, so it's sort of fresh in my mind. Uh, I, in August 2013, participated in a march to celebrate women's right to be topless in New York City and um, many other states across the U.S., and actually in many countries, too. It's organized by... Um, GoTopless.org, which I think, you know, I think the, the march would have been a lot more successful if it hadn't been organized by this particular organization. But I found it interesting that women should have this right and not exercise it. And that was interesting to me because, you know, when I imagined myself doing this, I, I felt a fear um, and I couldn't really pinpoint the source of the fear. So uh, I put myself in the middle of this very frightening situation my husband was 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 uh, was following me with a camera, and I brought along a digital recorder and just sort of you know recorded my observations. Um, and what I found was that there were, while I was there anyway, very few participants, very few, fe- especially female participants, and just hundreds of photographers. You know, I had been art modeling for about a year beforehand, um, so I was comfortable, and I've always been. You know, comfortable with cameras um even when I was really anorexic I needed cameras and uh and had been you know I had I'd come to be once again comfortable with my body but in the situation I felt very 
um, I felt outnumbered and I felt, um, you know, I felt, how do I say this, you know, humiliated, um, disrespected. So I wrote this chat book in reaction to, to that, um, following that experience. And it, and I noticed that it came to, uh, that a, a lot of other things spiraled into it while I was writing that I didn't really, I didn't expect to be there, like my eating disorder and, uh, and the sexual politics of me and also, um, what seemed to be like a, a lot of other experiences surrounding it, but also concerning the way that we, um, the way that, that we represent women's bodies, um, in, you know, and especially in the media. Do you see in the future th- the possibility of doing more conce- I don't know if you'd consider that a conceptual art project or, or performance art, but, but work that's taking place outside of the book, essentially, that reflects mm-hmm. back onto the book. So I wrote uh, for Things I Told My Mother a sort of, um, I guess what you would call a performance score. Um, just sort of, I, I set out a series of, of rules for myself that I would have to follow while I was marching. Uh, one of them was that I wasn't allowed to initiate conversation with anyone, but that if somebody initiated conversation with me, I would have to talk to them. Um, anybody was allowed to to interact with me, uh, you know, in whatever way they wanted to, just sort of touching me. Um, my husband, who was following me with the camera, wasn't allowed to make himself known as my husband. Um, I would not be wearing a shirt, but I would be wearing bottoms. Um, and, you know, and there were rules, you know, I mean, it, rather, there were reasons for all of these rules. So I called it a manifesto, but I wasn't really sure what to call it because I wasn't thinking of it as a performance piece. You know, I was just, I, I knew that I would have to, uh, there needed to be guidelines because literally anything could happen, you know. Um, but yeah, I think especially with essays, um, it's it's interesting to put myself in, in. I find it really interesting to put myself in situations that make me really uncomfortable um, or uh, or really upset, you know, um, and then explore all of the all of the reasons why. Is it also true that you're doing some filming while you're on book tour of other people that uh, have issues with food? That would yeah, that's another one. So I have been doing. Um, they were on camera interviews. They're not anymore because I realized the camera came to be a hindrance. But there, I've been interviewing um, people who have struggled with food. Um, I don't really care whether or not they've been diagnosed. Um, but uh, in fact, one person that I interviewed had been just crash dieting with her mother since she was a kid. You know, um, and uh, that's. That's another essay that that I, I originally thought that I was going to be writing a, a whole book proposal with those interviews, but rather than than writing about eating disorders in general and using the interviews to write about eating disorders, I would I think I'm going to write about the process of conducting the interviews. It's, it's much more interesting to me. I realize now to have um, to have those interactions than to try to you know work them into some sort of um, theoretical uh, uh, yeah something that I think I would not be qualified to write. I was reading about your Kickstarter campaign for the book tour and that your book tour itself is maybe not exactly, but is is suggestively going a similar route to the characters in, in the book itself. Is that, is that true, that you're sort of re- reenacting some of the trajectory of the, the couple in, in Binary Star in terms of your book order of cities? Yeah, that was not really, I, I, I was not, I didn't intend for that to be the case, but um, I think it's kind of cute that it is. Yeah. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you about one of the blurbs uh, on the on the dust jacket. Uh, you have a blurb from Harry Matthews, who's who's the only American member of the Olipo movement um, that's made most famous by like Calvino and Parekh and Cano. Mm. Um, 
And he said, I've read Binary Star twice, and I've become so entwined with it and that I'm reluctant to talk about the subject at length. Let me just say that I've never read anything like it. And given that the Olipo is so experimental to have like one of its primary uh, members see your book and experience something entirely new, it seems pretty... Yeah, that spectacular. Was pretty, that was pretty shocking to me too. But I also was curious <laughs> if you felt like there was any, if you felt any kinship with that movement, or um, well, or whether you used constraints the way that some of the constraint-based writers do to in order to create. I didn't use constraints per se, but I do feel. I mean, who can who can help but feel a kinship with that? Who you know? What kind of you know post postmodern writer can help to but feel a kinship with that movement? The for the people who are really. Um, moved by binary star what what are some other people you'd you'd be eager to point them towards oh my gosh um i think lydia yuknovich is fantastic um i mean obviously jenny awful you know i mean one of my all-time favorite writers is clarice lispector mm-hmm. she i think figures largely in this in this book i think just in the in the feeling of immediacy um and the uh the very very close first person you know um or like, you know, I think in a lot of Clarice's work, um, I think like also in Binary Star, there's very little setting, you know? I mean, the setting is the narrator's mind, you know? Um, minimal description otherwise, except maybe a, a, a dresser, you know, in an empty, in an otherwise empty room. You know, uh, before, you know, for a few years before I wrote Binary Star, I was immersing myself in her work and also um, Hilda Hilst and... Uh, Legia Fagundes Tellis and other experimental Brazilian writers. Um, well, it was great having you on Between the Covers today, Sarah. Thanks, I, David. I really look forward to what you do next. Thanks. Thank you. We're talking today to writer Sarah Gerard about her debut novel, Binary Star. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. 